This is Women Who Build Empires, a podcast celebrating women entrepreneurs and thought leaders who are turning the tables on outdated old school belief systems and building business empires that align with who they are, how they work, and how they are leaving a lasting legacy. And I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner, serial entrepreneur, investor, and business consultant for ambitious women entrepreneurs who are boldly taking their business to the next level. In each episode, you're going to get to know the women who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of how both success and failure have helped them become incredible CEOs. Hey, Empresses. Whether it's buying a piece of jewelry for yourself or receiving jewelry or giving the gift of jewelry for somebody, finding that right piece, that statement piece can be a little stressful. And my guest today, Kat McCoy, who is the owner of Best Kept Jewelry Concierge, is on a mission to take the stress out of buying fine jewelry for yourself or for somebody else. You can think of her as a cross between a personal shopper for fine jewelry and a private jeweler, working with the nation's top designers, jewelers, and wholesalers to source and commission special pieces across a variety of budgets and styles for her clients. And during the episode, we talked about a whole array of different things, everything from how she got into the business to where she's headed from a growth perspective. But we also talked about what some of the current jewelry trends are, how she broke into what's a very closed and close knit industry and how she built trust within that industry and the people that she was working with. And we also had a really cool conversation about the difference between lab grown diamonds and naturally grown diamonds and how you can tell the difference. Hey Kat, welcome. I am so excited to have you on the show today. You have such a unique business and it's something that um, I wish was around when I got married a hundred years ago because <laughs> it, it was for my now ex-husband, but like it was very stressful. So share with everybody a little bit about the magic that you make um, and, and how you're helping really change the face of jewelry. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. So um, I own Best Kept Jewelry Concierge, and I help people make and source really special pieces of jewelry for milestone occasions. So I focus on things like engagements and engagement rings, to your point. Um, I also do anniversary gifts and birthday gifts um, and major holidays. And, um, you know, the way I like to think about jewelry is it's very, very personal. And so how can we find the right piece for the right person with the right meaning behind it? Um, I think that a piece of jewelry can be really sentimental and very meaningful and not at all frivolous if there's a sense of thoughtfulness behind it and a bit of intention, um, which doesn't mean that you can't just love something because it's beautiful and it's well made. Um, I, but I think that when people think of jewelry, sometimes they think of just, you know, more is more or, or the bigger, the better. And I think that there's just so many different ways to think about it. Um, engagement rings are definitely, you know, my favorite part of the business because typically I'm working with someone who is a little bit nervous and doesn't know where to start or who to trust, but the stakes feel high and they really want to nail it. 
and they want to get it right and make sure that the person they're proposing to is over the moon um, and really happy with the ring. So uh, it's a very consultative process. It's a very personal process. And my job is to really make it as easy as possible to find the exact right thing. Yeah. And I'm curious too, like of the people that you're helping who are getting engaged, what's the percentage of people that are like the the person who's getting asked is like knows that the ring's coming versus like complete surprise? Such an interesting question. I would tell you well over 90%, maybe closer to even 95% of the time, uh, the person being proposed to um, can anticipate that this is coming. They've probably discussed stylistically what she's into. Perhaps they've even tried on rings together in a store to see what felt good on her hand. Um, so it's it's become very, very um, rare for, for us to be working on something where uh, the person they're proposing to has no idea it's coming. Wow. All right, cool. Because I'm a, I'm a like, I want to know and have my two cents put in for pretty much everything. And yet my girlfriend got married this past July and uh, she and her now husband had talked about getting married, but not in any like great plan or, or anything on the horizon. Then he proposed like a couple months later to her complete surprise. And I was like, maybe that still happens a lot. You know, it's even over, so I've been in business just about five years at this point. And even over the last five years, I feel like things have changed a little bit where more and more often, not only does she know that it's coming, but she's involved in some sort of way in the actual design of the ring. So um, things have changed quite a bit. I I personally think the rise of importance of engagement rings is directly tied to Instagram and what a visual kind of time period we're living in. A lot of my clients will sort of share with me, of course, they want to get it right because they want their bride to be to be happy, but they also feel a sense of pressure knowing that the ring will be photographed and it will be shared widely. And so um, I think just in general, uh, engagement rings have become higher stakes or or it feels like a bigger deal than even it did five or 10 years ago. Well, I mean, that's it's financially, it's an investment too. So it's a lot of money to get wrong. I know for for many of my clients, unless they own a home or a very fancy car, um, this is very likely one of the biggest purchases they've ever made. Yeah. So how did you start the business? I started back in 2018. And, you know, prior to starting Best Kept, I was a management consultant. So um, I do not come from uh, the jewelry space, at least in a traditional uh, way, but I've always loved jewelry and um, gift giving has really always been uh, my love language or the way that I kind of express uh, how I feel about you. And um, I have two older brothers who I have helped, you know, source gifts for girlfriends for for many, many years. Um, and I remember encouraging my middle brother to um, to consider a necklace for a big anniversary they had coming up. And he was so hesitant because he had tried to get her a pair of earrings in the past and she returned them. And um, I just remember thinking that if you could make people feel like they couldn't get it wrong, that without question, we were going to find the right piece and she was going to love it, that more people would take the leap and and buy a great piece of jewelry because when you get it right, it is such a meaningful thing. Um, But it's also a very vulnerable act to buy someone a piece of jewelry. So I understand people's hesitancy. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you make the transition from management consulting to best kept? I knew for a very long time that I had wanted to work for myself, come from a really long line of people who are self-employed, both my parents, one of my brothers, many, many cousins, both my grandfathers. And so I had always dreamed of working for myself, but I wasn't sure the right avenue or the right type of business to start. 
but I did know that I loved jewelry and that I had um, a taste or a sensibility around jewelry that I thought was a little bit different or a little bit special. Um, and as I was thinking through a potential business model for a fine jewelry concierge, like the one I, I now own, I love the idea of not holding any, any inventory of not needing office space or a huge staff from the beginning. It was really appealing to me to, you know, be able to operate something where you could keep your monthly operating expenses really low, um, and have some big months and have some slower months. Um, so from a business perspective, uh, model perspective, um, as I was thinking through how I wanted to approach this, um, those were some of the things I was sort of thinking about. But you know, as I mentioned, in terms of breaking into the industry and and you know um, building relationships with suppliers, that was a lot of. I, I lived in Brooklyn at the time, and just going into the Diamond District and hi, my name is hi, my name is, and um, I was really fortunate to connect with a couple of mentors my first year in business who. Um, have been just so generous with their knowledge and um, and really, really helpful. And I learned very quickly that um, the business I was bringing to a lot of these jewelers was completely incremental. Under no other circumstances would the person I'm working with find them on the fifth floor on 47th Street. And so people were open-minded to working with me, even though I didn't have a long-standing background in the jewelry space because it was all you know just new business for them. So it sounds like you were almost like just knocking on doors, introducing yourself. What was that like? And were people like, were some of the jewelers open to connecting with you or did you have to kind of knock more than once? You know, very much a mixed bag. The jewelry industry is notoriously insular, particularly in the Diamond District in New York City. Um, many of the people that you meet are third or fourth generation in the business. It's a tough business. And so um, oftentimes they find it very sort of strange or curious that you would want to enter the business if the, you know, if, if this wasn't a family thing. Um, so, so some people I thought were very open-minded. Other people were less interested. Um, I don't hold inventory. I buy one piece at a time. We source everything or make everything for you. Um, so, so for some people who had buying minimums, that was a little bit less attractive. But what I did learn very early on was because I didn't have this long-standing reputation, the best thing I could do was, um, what I call make a promise, keep a promise, make a promise, keep a promise. So that means if I say I'm going to follow up tonight with more information, that's following up tonight and not the next day. And just by doing what you say, what, what you said you were going to do, that's just such a quick way to build credibility. And the second thing that I started doing that really, really helped on the supplier side of things was um, making just a small order. Even if I didn't at that time have an exact client lined up, um, money talks. And so to the extent you're willing to open up your wallet and hand over a check or a credit card, that just sort of gets people's attention. And as I said, they don't, they didn't need to be tremendously big orders. It just needed to sort of be a show of, I am who I say I am. I'm serious. I actually do buy pieces and I'm not just looking to uh, kind of mine you for information or price compare. Right. And what was like nurturing those relationships, because it's not, you're, you're giving, I mean, some great information, but it also didn't happen overnight, right? Like you had to go back and, and have conversations. Um, so what was that like? And what were some of the things in addition to potentially buying some pieces or, or, you know, being in integrity, which I think is so important, like just, just doing what you say you're going to do is 
not, not enough people do that. <laughs> yes. It, it sounds so obvious, but it's true. It is such a differentiator and it's the, fir- it's something that anyone can do regardless of your background or contacts or anything else. Yes. I, you know, the first few years of the business were really about building up the supply side of what I do, of course, bringing on new clients. Um, but really, you know, now I can tell you in all sincerity that I can help you buy or I can help you source or make almost anything, but that's because over the last five years, I have really hit the hit the pavement, um, meeting lots of people. The best thing I did, or one of the the best things I did in the early days, was I took on clients of all different budgets. What I do is very time intensive. There's no algorithm, and so it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to work on a little four hundred dollar chain. Um, but by taking on almost any kind of project, um, I just completely learned on the job. So if I needed a little, very specific charm, I would have to go find a person that could supply that. And if something we had bought, if the chain broke, I knew I needed to find someone who could repair it or a new supplier who had better quality things. You know, I think there could have been from a business standpoint, a case to, you know, raise my buying minimums or only try and work on projects of a certain size. Um, but I really need to learn the industry and and build those relationships. And so by working on lots of smaller projects. I was able to uh, to learn a few things and make a few mistakes and ultimately, um, you know, find the right people. Yeah. That just sounds like so much fun too. Now, do you actually make you yourself make some of the jewelry then? Not with my own hands. Um, so I do uh, take on custom commissions, um, but I also don't consider myself a designer. Um, so I can help you um, in terms of coming up with the concept. We can put together a 3D rendering. So from that perspective, I am helping you design. But in terms of my passion and what I'm good at and the value I bring, I'm really more of a curator. Um, so based on our consultations and pictures that you send me, um, I can pretty quickly get to the heart of the matter of what I think you're going for. And then I, I like to to call my design process almost like Frankensteining. So um, I'll put together a mood board of lots of different visual references and you'll say, I love the class on page three, but what if we did sapphire instead of diamond? Or what if we set the stones like they are in that picture, um, but use a different metal color? So oftentimes we're pulling from lots of different visual references when making something really custom. Wow. That sounds like so much fun. You know, every day is different and, um, it's challenging. And um, even as I said, I don't physically make any of the jewelry with my hands, but um, just better understanding the technical process of how a, um, a piece of jewelry is made is really important because there have been things that I thought sounded really simple. Like, of course we could bezel set that. And then I later learned that that's not possible for this reason and that reason and that reason. So, um, so much of the knowledge I've acquired has been uh, on the job. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to so many of my early clients who um, were patient and understanding and encouraging um, as we were both kind of navigating things together. Super cool. What does like the next couple of years look like for you as you're continuing to grow? And are there any trends in jewelry um, that you're aware of now that you think will be, make a significant change in the industry? So um, from a trend standpoint, I would say the biggest thing to happen to the fine jewelry space in recent years, and we're still kind of waiting to see what the ultimate impact will be, has been um, lab-grown diamonds. Um, they're not the same as um, 
as synthetic diamonds um, or uh, their actual diamonds. So if a diamond in fr mined from the earth is made from high pressure and high temperatures, a lab grown diamond is also made using high pressure and high temperature, but in a lab instead of the ground. And it's really shaking things up because they're graded the same way a diamond is graded. Um, they get a color and a clarity and a cut grade. And it's physically impossible to tell the difference between a lab diamond and a diamond mine from the earth unless you have a special piece of equipment. So um, sometimes they're half as expensive. Sometimes they're a third of the price. Um, they're so much more affordable. Um, and yet um, for so many people, something that took thousands of years to grow is, is much more valuable to them, even if there's no way of as I said, unless you have a special piece of equipment of telling the difference. Um, so there are some people in the industry that really reject the use of lab-grown diamonds um, and almost find it offensive. Um, and then other people who are able to say, listen, the idea that you could be in a three-carat colorless diamond at this price point is just what an opportunity. Like, you know, why wouldn't I kind of support that? I, I think there will be lots of parallels to um, the pearl industry. Um, when, when cultured pearls came in, um, that really shook things up. And today, unless you're buying very exclusive South Sea pearls, pearls are very inexpensive. So it's been very interesting to see natural or, or diamonds mined from the earth really maintain their value. Um, but I think over the next few years, we'll see more of the impact of this you know tremendous technology. Outside of price, what's the benefit to purchasing a lab-grown diamond? Price probably being the primary, not only can you afford something bigger, but you can afford something that is nicer quality. Um, many people feel as though they are um, more ethical. You don't have to worry about what mine it came from or the providence. You know, I, I think that's a little bit of a misleading argument only because um, lab-grown diamonds require such a tremendous amount of energy to make. Um, so from an environmental standpoint, I, I, I don't think it's quite as simple as lab-growns are, are much more sustainable than um, natural diamonds. So it's a little bit more of a nuanced argument. But um, from a marketing perspective, a lot of people want, you know, want to tell you that uh, lab-grown diamonds are, are uh, sort of more ethical and, and more um, environmentally friendly. How long does it take to grow a, a lab-grown diamond? So it's certainly not overnight. It's a couple weeks or a couple months, um, okay. but it's not, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. Wow. So cool. And it's so cool. Um, and again, oh, to man. think that they're graded the same way diamonds are, you can have a GVS2 or an, a JSI1, you know, they're, um, they're, there's, it's, you know, they don't all come out the same. There's different qualities. And of course, they're cut into different shapes. And as I said, the idea that a 40-year veteran you know, can't tell the difference looking at it uh, with the naked eye. It's just, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. Wow. And circling back into the, where do you see your business growing in the next few years? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that probably because, you know, we're here in January at the start of the year. And I mentioned before how important it was for me in the beginning to take on sort of these smaller projects. Um, as I think about what, you know, 2.0 version 2.0 of the businesses. I think it's working with on on a fewer number of projects that have bigger budgets, um, and sort of focusing my energy in working with fewer uh, higher ticket uh, clients. 
Um, at the end of the day, just the way that I like to operate, it's very, very time consuming. And so it takes just as much time to source something very expensive as it does to source something uh, less expensive. So for me, being really thoughtful about the use of my time, I think will be really important. And I've also... Um, just the last year or so been really committed to, to learning so much more about diamonds and um, really focusing on engagement rings. I find that um, it's such a happy purchase, um, but it's a purchase, as I mentioned before, where the stakes feel high. My customers really do need a lot of help. Um, so I have a couple of diamond wholesalers who I work with who are honest and just tremendously talented and, um, from a setting standpoint, the setter we work with used to work at Harry Winston. So I like to say it's a Harry Winston quality ring at a fair price. And so of all the services I provide, engagement rings do feel like the best of, of both worlds in terms of everyone wins. Right, right. And would you ever like bring on team members then to also help you with clients or what's, how do you manage it all? <laughs> Yes, I would say the thing I would love to find is the right level of support when it comes to um, creating content for email and particularly for Instagram. Content creation, absolutely, a lot of the time feels like a full-time job. And so if I had someone who (laughs) could help me be smarter about repurposing things that I already have um, and sort of making them into more pieces of content or just even generating ideas. Um, I I don't consider myself a, a perfectionist, but because the business is mine and it's been mine on my own for so long, I, I, I get a little crazy if I feel like something's being misrepresented. So I don't see myself uh, giving up uh, full creative control, but I would love a little bit of help on that end. In terms of servicing clients, um, I think that there's absolutely a way I can bring someone in to help me um, manage clients and just deliver a better experience. But I think a lot of what people come to me for, pay me for is sort of my sense of taste and my sensibility. And, and that is the piece that I think can be a little bit harder to scale. Right. And can you work with it with um, people that are like located anywhere or? Yes. Yeah, so uh, what sort of came out of the pandemic was um, sort of uh, for, as for so many businesses, um, conducting so many of these appointments um, over Zoom. And so um, I would say from an engagement ring standpoint, probably more than half of the rings I do now, the clients are not in person selecting the stone in person. And so I'm sending them lots of photos and videos and really, you know, sort of providing my opinion as well. That's so cool. It's been cool. I think the pandemic really made people more open-minded to conducting these things virtually. Um, So that's been a huge win. And then, um, but I think also reputationally, um, it's very difficult to see the nuances between two different stones over uh, through an iPhone camera. And so there is that element of trust. And so um, I think my clients who I work with virtually, um, they're ultimately looking for me to say, I think it's down between these two. What do we think? Or you can't make a bad decision, but I would probably you know, push you towards this option. So I'm, I personally am always in the room um, mm-hmm. helping to curate and, and select the diamonds. But uh, but again, uh, you certainly don't have to be. I'm in awe because you have like the most fun job <laughs> and business, but like just being able to learn and then like really be creative with and helping your your clients really cultivate and create this one thing for a special moment, whether it's engagement or otherwise, it's still a very special piece. It's so jewelry is so emotional that way. And um I think my favorite 
client interactions. Sometimes someone will come to me because their wife said, nudge, 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 you got to go to cat. And they come in a little bit hesitant or not really wanting to engage in the process. And then by the end of it, they're, um, they're saying things like, you know what, in this instance, I actually think we should go down a quarter size because I know that her fingers have swollen. And, and so to see clients kind of like come along for the ride and really own the final decision is so exciting for me because, um, the very, very, very best gifts are usually ones that you're so excited you give it to the person early. Uh, you just can't wait for them to open it. And that's always what we're going for is that level of, um, of course, we want the person who will be wearing the jewelry to be really happy. But when you're so excited to, to give the piece to someone, that to me is the the ultimate. Yeah. Like the little kid at, at Christmas type of thing. Exactly. Exactly. What's um, what, what are some of the things that you've learned as you've grown the business um, as, the, as a business owner? I would say um, the need for systems um, is some is a lesson I learn every year, and I'm finally sort of uh, buckling down and getting better with that. Um, last year was the year I finally invested in um, a client service um, uh, platform. I so I use HoneyBook, which is very simple and affordable, and that's really helped me know where I am in the process with all of my clients. Um, and just really defining the process from we start with a consultation and then I send you a proposal and and um, and sort of really sticking to some of the systems has been really important. I would say the thing that I've learned more recently um, that's a little bit more instinctual is when to take lots of input and pull people and see what they think and when to really trust your own instincts. I think there are so many people right now who are so excited to tell you all the things that you could be doing better in your business, or, you know, there are so many webinars and free tips and download my PDF. And I think there was a point probably last year where I was so inundated with other people's philosophies um, that it was hard for me to find my own voice. And I think being able to balance incredible inputs and being curious and learning with um, what feels true to you. I think that's what you said is so important because two things, what you said about like other people's philosophies is great, but you have to have your own, your own process, your own way, your own culture. And I think it's also very easy to get stuck in learning and not running the business. Completely. It can feel really productive to uh, be listening to these podcasts and to be, you know, creating new strategies. It can feel like you're really doing stuff, but that's not the same as ringing the cash register with a sale. And so I, I think last year was one of the first years I really invested in uh, personal growth and improvement and um, getting a business coach, which was completely transformational for me. Um, mm -hmm. So all of that is so important, but it's also important to do. Um, and so those things, um, they don't have to be in conflict, but for me, sometimes it, it does feel like they are. Yeah. Well, uh, there's so many things out there that you can sign up for that are free or low cost and seem like, oh, I'm going to pick up some great tips. And, you know, 20 hours later, and <laughs> you have a lot of information in your head and you're not, you can't take action on any of them. Yes. And then one message can sometimes dil dilute another message. So I think, um, also appreciating that there are seasons in your life and seasons in your business. So um, there probably is a season where it is time to sharpen your pencil and really 
immerse yourself in learning. And then there are other times where it's just more go, go, go. And I think the challenging part is only really you can say what season you need to be in. Oh my God. That Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. And I'm so glad that you said that. So where can everybody find you, Kat? My website is bestkept.com, um, but probably the best way to to find me is on Instagram and the handle is at bestkeptjewelry. Okay. Yeah. I was on your Instagram earlier today. It's super cool. You have gorgeous photos. Uh, and I love all of the pieces that you, you have both on the website and Instagram. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for being on. I really, I love the conversation and I just, I love your business. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and it's, it, I so appreciate it. What I do is a little bit strange. And so some people don't always get it, but I feel like you really connect with why someone would pay for a service like mine and, and why what I do is not necessarily frivolous, but you know, can be important. No, it's a huge time saver and, and anxiety saver too. Like, I mean, I haven't purchased anything recently, but, and I'm not super knowledgeable about jewelry, but the idea of walking into any jewelry store with like vast amounts of options and not knowing a little bit about how it's made and, and, you know, what's going to look good on me and what will last like that. It's a lot of information to just have somebody guide in, in a big purchase to me just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so thank you. It's my hope that you find at least one nugget of value in each episode of Women Who Build Empires. And if that's true, please follow and share Women Who Build Empires with your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Your support is what will help this podcast be found by more women just like you.